Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another incredible episode of Prison Counts Podcast, where we take you inside the criminal justice system and what it's really like to spend life in prison. I'm your host, Ryan Ferguson, here as always with my good friend and co-host, Dave Dowling. Dave, how you been, my friend? Real good. Seems like a long time since we did this. It's been a little while, been a little while. We uh, The summer season is here. We're getting busy, which is uh, why we're closing out with our last few episodes. But what's the exciting thing about that, Dave? Well, the exciting thing is we're going to come back bigger and better than ever, you know? Yes, indeed. You know? We're going to talk a little bit about the season we just did and then uh, the season to come and our lives in general and whatever else pops up. Indeed, indeed. And we're coming back with video. So be prepared for that. You're going to see all our beautiful smiling faces. That'll be fun. I look forward to that. But first, we're going to do this awesome episode with Brooke Kamhai. You might know her from The Amazing Race fame. She is a winner. She's a champion. She did what I could not do and my good friend Dusty Harris could not do, win The Amazing Race. It's pretty awesome. I'm looking forward to having her on here. We're having her on not just because she's an awesome champion, but because she is in law. She was a prosecutor and now she's an attorney. Dave, we get to talk to a former prosecutor. That's awesome. Inside scoops. Tell-alls. Sad story. That's what we're so, looking uh, for, excitement. You got some some interesting questions lined up? I think I do. I'm kind of a seat-in-my-pants kind of guy, but uh, yeah, I've got some ideas of what I'd like uh, her to share with us, if she will. Indeed, we'll indeed. Yeah, I my understanding is that she left the business of being a prosecutor because she didn't love what she saw in that world, and- uh, and chose to hit the eject button, as many prosecutors probably should, because they're forced to try cases they don't believe in, uh, even if they don't believe it's the right thing to do. It's kind of insane. But uh, it's where we're at in our criminal justice system. Anyways, those are my words, not Brooks. Let's get hers. We'll bring her right in. Brooke, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Our first prosecutor. Very cool. For, our first for attorney. Prosecutor. Yeah. Former prosecutor. Former prosecutor. One, mm-hmm. You know what they say, once a prosecutor, always a prosecutor. No, they That's don't. Fair. I'm just kidding. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That is a good distinction to make. So you were a prosecutor, you're still in law, and you are the winner of Amazing Race Season 29. How cool is that? These are all accurate things that you were saying. Um, yeah, I was a prosecutor in New York on Long Island for from 2005 to the end of 2007. And then I started a very small firm with a friend of mine who I've known, I'd known since I was six. So I've now known him 30 something years and he does family law. I do criminal defense. And I think it's, I think it's kind of cool to have been on the prosecution side before going to the defense side. Cause it gives you some unique insight into how the system runs and what you're up against when you're now defending people against the district attorney's office. Well, absolutely. Anytime I ever went to like hire a lawyer, if they said I was a prosecutor before, that's a big selling point to me, you know, because that means you know the system. If you know the system, I don't want to necessarily say you know the people, but you know, it's something when you have a good relationship with the people who are prosecuting a case that you're defending, because not only do they know you and they're probably more likely to engage in a dialogue with you, but they know if, if you weren't 
like a bullshit artist on the inside, they know you're not going to be a bullshit artist on the outside. And so I think the reputation that you, that you make for yourself at the DA's office will follow you for better or for worse. Right. Uh, You know, likability goes a long way in every field of life. You know, I mean, it really does. You know, people tend to like you and respect what you do, then you can get more. And with me, yeah, with me, I was generally always guilty. So I wanted a good deal maker. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, like ability, that- honestly, it's it it does make a lot of sense, and you would like to think that juries always look only at the evidence and don't look at anything else. But it's just human nature. If you can't decide right. on something, and and you look at who did I like more, who do I trust more, who's coming across more earnest and honest, and if you don't have those things going for you, I think you're just fighting an uphill battle from the beginning of any case. Yeah. Yeah, it, it'll distort your facts, I think, in a negative way if you don't come across like you're talking about. I just realized, Dave, that's why you have such a good personality, right? I mean, you just you kept messing up. You kept getting in trouble with the law. And you thought being a funny guy would fix all your problems. Well, and it did a lot of my problems, you know, but not the main ones, you know. The main ones were not getting solved fast enough. But, uh, you know, I never looked really, even when I was in addiction and doing crime i never looked really at the police or the press as the enemy per se honestly you know i knew what i was doing was wrong and i knew it was their job to put an end to that you know and you know that's a that's a difficult thing to try to explain i don't like to ever try to explain myself on it you know because it's too much but it's just if you do something then you got to pay for something you know and i did some stuff and i paid for some stuff you know and that's how I feel about it. That's why I don't try to hide it or you can't, you know, cover it up. Just use it for the betterment of somebody else. You know, I was going to say there are obviously there are you know bad seeds in every aspect of the system. There are prosecutors who just think everybody is guilty and they don't look while they look at the facts of the case. Every case is the biggest case that's ever happened. There are obviously bad cops, and I think the saying is true: like one bad apple spoils the bunch, and so. I, I don't think, I mean, there are people who think all prosecutors are evil. They're just looking for a conviction. All cops are bad. They're just looking to arrest. And I don't think that's the case. But unfortunately, I did see some of that at the DA's office. And it's a large part- portion of why I don't work there anymore. Yeah. And I I can't wait to jump into that. And just to set the tone, uh, everybody knows my story who's listening to this. They know that I went to prison because of bad police and prosecutor work. They know that I believe that prosecutors should be held accountable for their actions. And that is a huge reason why wrongful convictions happen. Police as well should be held accountable for their actions. Um, It happens, but a lot, a lot less so. Um, Prosecutors just, there's no accountability period. But I want to, I want to say anybody in your case, I I mean, knowing (laughs) what I know about your case, it's infuriating. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I do want to say that I do believe that all these positions are necessary. We need good police. We need good prosecutors. We need a system that works for the people. And I trust and believe in the system. We're going to have an open and honest conversation about some of the issues with the prosecutor's office. And that's just to make it better, right? We believe in it, but it can be better. It's ran by people. So what Brooke, are some of the issues that you saw in the prosecutor's office that kind of made you want to leave working in that area? 
So I started at the DA's office under one district attorney, and then a couple years in, there was an election and a new district attorney took over, and there was a big transition in the office. I think when I started at the DA's office, my direct boss was to this day the best person that I ever worked for. He was willing to listen. He was willing to have conversations about cases. He was not one of those people who said, you know, try everything or don't make a deal or um, you can't do this, you can't do that. He was always very willing to say, well, why do you think that we should come down on this charge or why do you think it should be handled this way? And he was very reasonable. Um, I did have bosses at that office who were significantly less reasonable. I mean, there were policies about certain types of cases, like on drunk driving cases where people didn't blow into a breathalyzer. We weren't to offer deals because there was no reading on the breathalyzer. And there were cases that went to trial that I don't ever think should have gone to trial. And so there were times where we did have to try cases that we didn't necessarily believe in. But that was part of the job. And that starts to weigh on you. You know what I mean? And so it was a lot of who I ended up working for and a lot of policy that I think has since been changed, which I appreciate. But you don't want to go to work and and prosecute something that maybe you don't think should make its mm -hmm. way to trial. Hey, Brooke, did you ever have to prosecute a case that you really didn't want to, but you had yeah. to do it because that's your professional job? Yeah, Just like, like I'm this. sure defense attorneys have to defend people that they don't necessarily want to defend. Now, there was there were a lot of assistant district attorneys in my office. There were probably about 30 of us. And so, I mean, there were times where if there was a case that I didn't want to take, there was some switching around where people believed in certain issues and other people didn't. And I, for example... Um, there was this one girl who never liked to handle cases dealing with animal abuse. I am the world's biggest animal advocate. I would take those from her and I, you hurt a puppy or a kitten, you should go to jail for the rest of your <laughs> life. Coming. I feel I am coming for you. I support but that. But I didn't, I didn't really like prosecuting some of the domestic violence cases because just my own personal reasons. And so I feel that as a defense attorney, I have the opportunity to sort of take what I want and not take what I want which is great because there are some cases where while I think I would do a great job on your case, I'm probably not the best lawyer for you. And I think that that's an important distinction. We shouldn't have to just try everything because it's in front of us. I think there should be more dialogue. I think the system is not the best that it could be. And I do think there should be some reform to the system in, in all aspects. I don't think it's just the prosecutor's offices that need change. I think legal aid needs change. I think the law in itself needs change. I think bail reform needs to happen. I think there's a lot that that can really, really make a big difference, little changes that can make a big difference in the future. What what kind of changes in your mind or mm -hmm. that you've thought of in legal aid do you think could be made? So I never worked at legal aid. One of my closest friends does. And I did try a couple of cases against legal aid attorneys. So I can't speak to their internal procedures. But what I will say is that what I have found when I was trying cases against legal aid attorneys is that I think that there should be more um, collaboration between the DA's office and legal aid. When I was there, which is admittedly 10 plus years ago at this point, there was, there was a lot of feeling like I was talking to a brick wall and I'm sure they felt the same way about the DA's office because the two offices didn't collaborate enough. And I think there could have been a lot more, and I'm air quoting justice 
because I don't think justice is jail time and I don't think justice is necessarily an acquittal, but I do think it's collaboration that the offices weren't willing to have with each other that could make a real difference. Yeah, justice is always going to be arbitrary. Right. Like that. I mean, what one person thinks, if you ask the victim's family, they're going to tell you one thing. If you ask somebody who's not emotionally involved, they may tell you another thing. You know, Why, Brooke, do you think that there was not a lot of collaboration between those offices? I mean, you would think that, you know, it's it's all government, right? And they're all trying to do the right thing, get justice. So why is there no communication? Why is there a breakdown there, do you think? You know, I think part of it is ego. I think part of it is there are, you know, like I said, if there were 30 people in my office at the DA's office, my particular bureau, and there were the same number of legal aid attorneys in that particular bureau, we're all different. You know, I may feel that something, I may look at a case, look at the facts and feel that a reduction or a plea is warranted. Whereas a different assistant district attorney based on their life experiences or how they read a case may think absolutely not a plea is warranted. And we would, you know, go to the supervisors and probably explain the same case fairly differently. And so part of the lack of collaboration is probably due to just human differences. Part of the lack of collaboration, I think, is unfortunately, some people in the DA's office feel that convictions are more important than justice and probably the same on the other side. But I think a a lot of things would be solved if people put put all of that out of their head and worked together a bit more. And some of us did. When I was a DA, there were defense attorneys who would come to me and say, I'm very glad that you're the DA in my case because they knew I was known to be a more reasonable assistant district attorney as opposed to someone who maybe was a bit newer and thought everything should go to trial. And right. once that idea is is taken out of somebody's head and they realize <laughs> not every case is capital murder and not every case, you know, look at the facts. You shouldn't look at a case without knowing every fact before you say this is how it should proceed. And on that note, I, I think that's a really interesting thing. Do you think that if you had more discretion on the cases that you were able to, you know, that were given to you and you could say, I don't want to take this one to trial. I don't believe in, I don't necessarily think they're guilty. Do you think there should be more of that? And do you think that that would make the system work better? I do think there should be more of that. I do. I will say that first boss I was talking about allowed us to have more of that. You know, there are people who I've run into who don't necessarily even, not that they don't want to hear it, but you didn't get the same leeway, the same time. They wouldn't dedicate the same amount of energy to like talking through the entire case with you and have you explain why these circumstances are such. They would they would look at the charges and say, mm, this charge, sorry, we need to go forward. And sometimes I would feel like I couldn't get my arguments out to the boss. I don't necessarily think that every first year assistant district attorney should have full autonomy to do what they want with the case. I think you need to have a hierarchy, but I do think just as in every profession, you know, there are better supervisors and there are ones who care more and there are ones who can't be bothered with the minutia of, of lower level cases. Are there mandatory minimums in the state of New York on certain Um, cases? On certain cases. Right. And do you feel like sentencing guidelines tied your hands or, or made it more simple um, and fair. How, how do you feel about that? This may come out sounding wrong, but I never really. Okay. So if a case were going to go to trial, then I never really cared about the sentencing guidelines. Cause for me, I didn't, I wasn't in charge of 
the sentencing, it was the judge would make the decision on what sure. was going to happen to the defendant. So I never really thought about the sentencing. When I went on the defense side, and I remember when I first started as a defense attorney, I second chaired this murder murder case. We got to trial. We were about to pick a jury. And there were just so many things that the district attorney's office, this was in Queens, the district attorney's office did poorly. And this was an office that I interned in during law school. I have the utmost respect for the district attorney's office. But again, you never know what specific district attorney you're going to get. And there were just mistakes were made. Evidence was was delayed. At one point, I was brought into this case a couple of years after the gentleman was arrested and he'd been sitting in jail. And I found evidence. I took myself to Queens and found um, video off of a hard drive from a motel of a parking lot that was tied to this case that we were never made aware existed. And I, I don't know that the DA's office knew it existed because they didn't have it either, but it, it should have shouldn't have waited years to be able to find something and recover it. Right. And like Ryan, when you got arrested and you were going through the process, did they ever offer you a deal to plead guilty? No. Uh, but I also like made say, it very clear that there's no way in hell I would have ever right. even entertained. Because your co-defendant did get a deal. Like he took yeah. a, a, a deal. And that's why he's still there. Because once you plead guilty, it's way harder to get out than if you, right? Than if you it's, went to trial. I don't even know if I would say it's way harder. I think it's, basically impossible you lose your constitutional right to file an appeal right um so you you're basically stuck it doesn't matter if you know you have a video of the person who actually committed the crime and you at home sleeping or whatever it is they're going to leave you in prison and that's also what kind of bothers me about da's offices or they they can have evidence to prove innocence but they still won't necessarily and this is on the other side right this is not when you're prosecuting this is on appeals but they just fight it because – and Brooke, I'm really curious about your opinion on this. I know you didn't work in this specific area of law, but if there is an appeal, it's almost like they just feel like, well, it doesn't matter if we know they're innocent. Somebody has to fight that side of the case to leave this person in prison. Is somebody that – always – yeah, I mean, well, okay, <laughs> yeah. It's like an academic Some, thing. It, I, I, the hard part is when you say that, the – the, my lawyer hack goes, well, I would like to think that if there's a video that shows up that says the person didn't do it and there's actual proof that the person was sleeping in their bed, that someone wouldn't say, well, you know, they took a deal. People, let me say this. People confess to things they didn't do all the time. I don't understand it. I've never understood it. I have had clients who did it. And I have asked, what, what's going on in your head? Like, why would you ever say you did something you didn't do? But it happens all the time. So when you do take a plea, at least where I am, I can't speak to the laws in the other states. One of the things the judge will ask you when you take your deal is um, let you know that you waived your right to appeal, like Ryan said. So you can't just come back. And and sometimes it's part of the deal where we would get the, um, the judge to not make our client waive their right to appeal. Oh. It was like a sticking point. It was very rare, but nine times out of 10 or probably higher, you will automatically just waive your right to appeal. It's part of the standard language when you're an assistant district attorney and you're giving a deal to someone putting putting your plea on the record. It's standard. Yeah. So it, part of the reason it's so hard to get out once you are convicted or on the appeal phase is you've said that you've done it. And I don't think people are, are jumping to go back to court to say, look, he said he did it. Like, what am I wasting my time going back on an appeal? But 
there are, I would like to think that if some new evidence comes up, like you're talking about, like some legitimately exculpatory evidence that prosecutors, federal or state, are not going to push to keep somebody in jail they know shouldn't be there because of an academic exercise. Right. I, I'm sure well, it happens. I've seen, I've seen it in your- so We've all seen it, right? Yeah. That's a great point because sometimes when they know, like in Ryan's case, they still let the wheels turn so slow and- it, it oh, they becomes, fought completely against it. It's not about the right. wheels. They they slowed the wheels down to keep me in prison as long as they could, knowing I was no innocent, reason. and still fought it the entire way. Right. Well, and I think the reasons true. there are, it, I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't watch it in person. But right. ego plays a huge part. You have right. a prosecutor who has now made their way to the judgeship. I mean, it's, right. it's right. unfortunate because you don't ever want to see that happen. But to just put myself in there, I... Well, politics. I never would have handled it the same way. Right. Exactly. There's politics. There's policies. There's people having to tuck their tail between their legs and admit they were wrong. And I think lawyers are egotistical. They don't particularly like to admit that they've done something wrong. I I think politics overrides justice way too often in this country. It it gets outrageous. The winds of change blow, and one one year you get four years for something you did, and the next year you get thirty, and you have to do eighty five percent of it or something. You know, And, and and then it blows back again. And then you got to fight to get what the new guy got. And it's it, so, you know, and another thing that, that guys like me know that maybe Ryan doesn't know because he only had his one experience, but I've had multiple experience. And and look, I don't, I don't feel like I'm the victim of any system. Okay. At, at, at any means, but there was one time I legitimately didn't do something, you know, and they had charged me with it. And they let me know right off the bat that if you take this to trial and lose, we're going to punish you. Now, we're offered you this. If you don't take this and you go to this trial and lose, we're going to punish you. you know, and, and do you I think they knew that. you were innocent, though, or do you think that's just like how they – I mean, because that's how they operate. I think that at the point with me, and I, and I kind of don't blame them, I, I was such a wild guy in, in Venice, which I think they were just like, okay, wh- why are you so adamant about this one when you know you – you know? But, you know See, when and I would disagree. I, I, I don't know how far into your – career how, how many previous convictions you sorry i don't know how many previous convictions great. you had before your that point but i would think if i'm the district attorney and i hear you be adamant that you didn't do this one whatever the this one was my right. brain would go look this guy's been in jail x number of times he has taken responsibility right. when he's done something wrong like maybe we should look right. i've never gone to trial closely. Right. That's more to my point. When when you have done something wrong, you've taken a deal because I would like to assume you knew you had done something wrong. You were guilty of some version of that crime. And the deal made more sense. Right. So if you came to me and said, you know, I really didn't do this one. I think some prosecutors it's human nature. I think any some of any group of people, some of potential jurors reading an article about it would go. He's done it before he did it again. But you know, why would you be so adamant about it if Ryan, you've always taken responsibility for stuff? Yeah. Now, Ryan and I did a show a couple of weeks ago about the difference between county jail and prison. I heard it. Now, a person who makes bond and has the money and the means to make bond has less pressure on him on a daily basis to make a good deal and to listen to the facts. But a person in, and I, you know, you were a prosecutor in Long Island, I'm sure that county jail is no joke. It's very difficult to be patient 
when you're in a circumstance that's so deplorable sometimes, you know. Oh, it's always easier to defend a case from when your client is out than when they're in. You're right. There's, especially when somebody's in for the first time and they've never experienced, you know, the Nassau County Correctional Center, um, which I'm sure I've never been in the cells. I've only been in the general and the attorney visiting area. So I can't, and I only know what clients have told me. So I can't speak to what it's like behind the scenes, but from what I know, no correctional center is particularly a lovely place to be. But when you're in there and you're feeling a whole new experience of losing your freedom for the first time, there is generally more pressure, uh, I would say, to give up. up. Yeah, because you know at some point you're going to be out at some point rather than thinking the longer this drags, I am I ever going to go home again? I wonder, do you think... Uh, did the do prosecutors know that people who are being charged who are in the county jail for sustained periods of time do they do they know that's a, a card to play like we'll leave you in here longer and you'll end up having to take a deal do they talk about that is that known um i don't i don't think that's ethical <laughs> i mean well i think a lot of things but that is prosecutors it real do is not ethical I, personally. I i will say that i have I'm thinking, but I I will say that thankfully, I don't think I've ever seen a prosecutor that I work with have the mentality of if we let them stew for long enough, they'll give up and take a deal. I don't think I've ever experienced that kind of unethical behavior because people do have a right to a speedy trial. Speedy does not mean fast. I mean, cases that I took to trial, even misdemeanor cases could take a year, two years, three years if they got bumped around. But it was never, I mean, I never had that mentality. And thankfully, I don't think I've ever come across anyone with the mentality of let's like not give a deal yet or right. let's let keep them, them in the pressure cooker. Long, right. right. No, I don't, I don't think so. I'm sure it um, happens, but I don't think it's you, ever happened in my experience. Let me ask you something kind of on the same wave. And a lot of guys believe this on my end of the spectrum that, okay, let's say I go and I get this lawyer and he's a high price lawyer renowned. I give him $20,000 and I'm hoping he's going to make a good deal for me. But he's got another client that gave him $40,000. Do you think there's cases where they trade one guy for the other guy? And I'm just asking you honestly, like, do you think there's deals made I mean, where you're I'm like, sure I'll give you this I'm guy. Sure. And if you give me this guy, I'll let you have this guy, you know? And I and, think and, this happens in the movies much more than it happens. I'm sure it happens. I, I've never seen, I, I hope it doesn't happen. I've never seen it happen. I mean, in cases with co-defendants, um, you don't usually represent both of them. So you'll have another attorney with you and the DA's office will not always offer both of the defendants the same deal. They will come to one and say, you know, turn on the other. That kind of stuff does happen. Try and play one against the other. But well, I don't those think- Those are legitimate tools too. I mean, right. I'm not- yeah. But I don't think I've ever- witness. And I hope I never witnessed because that's a horrible, horribly unethical thing to hear happen. An attorney, especially because of how they were paid, um, trade on one person's freedom or deal for another. And I'm not saying I know that happens, but it is a belief amongst, you know, guys who get in trouble and have had to dish out a bunch of money and all this stuff. And then you you see another guy do something way worse than you and get less. And he's got the same attorney. All of a sudden you're getting hammered. It's like, man, did you just sell me out? But I guess that's human nature to think that way. I mean, you know, I just like to see a little behind the scenes, like what really goes on on these deals. I've never seen it happen, but just in the same way that you're saying with the same attorney, 
I've seen different judges give the same kind of case to very different sentences, both for defendants who've never done, never had a previous criminal record. So part of it is you try and say with judges, with anyone who does the sentencing, that they keep their previous life experiences out of their rulings. They're supposed to be impartial. And that's, you know, the general rule of a juror. Can you be fair and impartial? If not, you shouldn't serve on a jury. But is anybody really ever completely fair and impartial? You'd like to We're think you are. We're all human like beings. To, I mean, right. So as far as the people that you're talking about, your friends who have mentioned this, I can't speak to what their lawyer did. I would like to believe that no lawyer ever does anything that's, that's horrific like right. that. And, and I'm I sure there are times that things happen. But again, with every no two people who are accused of a crime, no two defendants in a courtroom are exactly the same. They don't have the same life experiences. They may both not have right. a record, but with judges, so, with juries, it all, all of those so things as, play into as a, it. As a prosecuting attorney, and you've had to make deals. You, you have to make deals yeah. to get the system rolling. So what kind of goes into a deal you would make? Like, uh, like, what do you think about when you offer something? Like, I, I'm just kind of curious about that. Like what, do, what goes to like, do you um, mind when you, when you make, how, how does it work? Do you have to get it cleared with the judge or. I mean, so back when I was at the DA's office, there were certain things that automatically got an offer. If it's now the rules on, for example, marijuana litigation are very different now, but if it was your first time caught with marijuana, you for the most part, we're automatically getting something called an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal, an ACD. What that means is don't get in trouble for the next year. It gets dismissed and sealed as if it never happened. So we didn't actually have to do anything with those right. because it would go away. Um, depending on the type of case, I was the elder um, assistant district attorney in the misdemeanor uh, DWI, driving while intoxicated part for a while. So I tried a lot of of DWI cases before I went up into felonies. And um, like I said, there was a general rule that if you didn't have a breathalyzer reading, if somebody refused to blow into the breathalyzer, they didn't get an offer at the DA's office because they didn't give us the evidence that that we needed. And the general thought was, and there is a jury charge that says if uh, there was no reading in this case, so they basically, basically tells the jury, you can fi- well, they would, yes, it was, it was, they didn't have to go to trial, but the defense attorney throw yourself on the mercy cases, of the court. Well, yes, because on your first conviction, nothing horrible would happen to you. Or sure. your defense attorney had to come to the DA's office with enough extenuating circumstances that it would mean that we could go to the supervisor and say, here's why an offer should be made on this particular charge where we wouldn't normally make one. What do you think now that you're in the private sector? Like, what's the difference between a public defender and a $50,000 lawyer? I mean, what do you get different? I mean, I guess some, I mean, sometimes you get a better attorney who's a public defender. They, the DA's, I, when I was at the DA's office at any given time, I probably had 300 cases in my, my particular office. And so they are incredibly overworked. I could never do the job of a public defender. I think they do God's work because everyone is entitled to a, to a defense and a good defense and the best defense possible. And public defenders get a lot of experience. In my first year at the DA's office, I think I tried 14 cases in my first year. So every like third week I was on trial and the legal aid attorneys get the same experience. You know, there are private defense attorneys who like to plead cases out and very rarely, if ever, see the inside of a courtroom with a jury and panels. And there are private defense attorneys who pride themselves on 
trying as many cases as they can. So I, I wouldn't always say that a private attorney is your best bet. Not that I don't want business, but sometimes you're going to get a better get a better result because uh, honestly, most guys who get in trouble aren't really looking to go see that jury. You know, they're looking for a guy who can make yeah. them a deal. You know, yeah. a guy who can go back there and knows people and can make them a deal. That's the thought on the other side, you know, and, and I don't think that's a wrong thought, but it's kind of makes you sad to think that a guy who doesn't have any money won't be able to get a deal that a guy who does have money, you know, that doesn't, that's a, that's a skews justice, you know, when you can buy justice, you know, I'm mean, not I saying you did. I'm not attacking you in any way, Brooke. I hope you don't, don't take it like attacked. that. No, no I'm okay. not taking it that way because I know I don't. I've never done such. But I mean, you see it in the media. You see it all the time. the The richest one percent, the conviction rate amongst them is significantly lower than, unfortunately, you know, people of color, people who poor, poor people of any nationality, race, creed, religion. But in New York specifically, it's known that you know, black and brown people do not get the same sentencing, do not get the same experience. And it's, it's something that really needs to be changed. What do you think is something that can be done to change that? Cause it has to change and it should have happened forever ago, but like, how is that still happening today? If only I knew, I mean, that's the, that's the $64,000 question, right? It's, I think bail reform is something that, and I don't want to bore people with bail reform, but I think that one of my, I think it's really, yeah, I don't think that's a boring subject at all. So one of my best friends is a legal aid attorney and to listen to her have to come off of night arraignments and be thrilled that only one or two people were remanded that night or held in on bail that they couldn't afford that night. I think people forget that the purpose of bail is just to ensure somebody comes back to court. It's not to punish you for crimes that you were alleged to have committed. Because at that point, at an arraignment, you haven't done anything wrong in the eyes of the court. I think innocent until proven guilty is a is a is a philosophy that that doesn't exist as much as it should. I mean, Ryan, you can you can probably tell me people who were on your jury just by virtue of the fact that you were sitting in the chair labeled defendant probably assumed you were guilty because you were sitting there. And it's one of the first things that when I try a case or when any defense attorney tries a case, they should get out of a jury. Like, look at that guy. What did they do? And you will inevitably have a juror or two that says, oh, well, they did uh, shoplifting. They did, they assaulted someone and you'll go and they're gone because they just assume that by sitting in that defense chair, you've already committed the crime. There's a reason you're yep. here. Right. And it's they a difficult subject something. because if let's say somebody got arrested for multiple murders, you don't want to say, well, you're innocent until proven guilty. Go on your way. Cool. We'll get back to you. You know, go to the street. So it's right. tough. You know, I it's think a tough that there call. Is, it is a very tough call because there are people. There are circumstances. Right, there right. are people who are a danger to society. And Certainly. I'm not saying nobody should be imprisoned. I don't feel that way. But I no, do I mean, think that the prisons are crowded with people who shouldn't necessarily be there. So to switch gears just a little bit, I wonder, Brooke, this is kind of a controversial subject, but in my belief, wrongful convictions would almost come to an end if prosecutors were held accountable for for their actions. So say a prosecutor um, puts on perjured testimony, you can prove it, that is illegal. Uh, If they were held accountable for that, then obviously that wouldn't happen, but they never are. Do you think that some sort of punishment for prosecutors 
would be good, would be helpful. And at the same time, do you think that if that did happen, would prosecutors not want to be doing their job because they'd be fearful well, of doing their job? Yeah, I, I do think everybody, prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, um, I think everybody should be held accountable for their actions. I do think for sure. that there are creative ways that people ask their witnesses questions so that they are not suborning perjury or putting people on the stand that are going to say something that are that's untrue. And unfortunately, I think that should change. I do think it's not about, it's not, it shouldn't be about just getting the conviction. I think it should, it's obviously should be more about finding out the truth. And I think unfortunately, sometimes that get that gets lost in translation. But I do think that some prosecutorial discretion needs to be allowed because if every prosecutor and I don't think most of them do this, but if every prosecutor is constantly worried that anything they ask or any witness they put up there could get them thrown in jail, then I think you're going to lose people who, who are willing to do the job because it's not right. like it and pays we, well. It's not we like asked, they're doing the money. We asked you earlier in the conversation if you ever had to prosecute something that you didn't like. And you said, yeah, and a lot of public defenders have to do that, too. And, and that's right. And I, I don't think a person should be prosecuted for doing their job. Like if a grand jury indicts. And here's the person, and that's the one. Then you have a – it's your responsibility to prosecute that person. I think when you when it can be proved that you're doing it with malice, then I think there should be some some repercussion, you know. Yeah. I mean, I the case that I was talking about earlier where I was second sharing the, the murder trial in Queens, I think th- that particular experience opened my eyes because it was at the very beginning of my career as a defense attorney because I'd been at the DA's office – after that, I worked at a large law firm, large international law firm, doing um, medical malpractice defense for a short while. And then I started a law firm with a friend of mine who I've known for the 30 some odd years. And um, at that time, I was sort of working under a, a big deal defense attorney on Long Island and second chairing a, a case for him that had been going on for several years when I was brought in. And I saw things that happened from the DA's office that I would like to think we're not done maliciously. I would like to think that, you know, just mistakes are made. People are overwhelmed. Things sure. get missed. But let's assume that in that case, things did just get missed. She was overwhelmed. She was, she had so many cases, you know, dragged on for years. There are bound to be little things that fall through the cracks. If she had to worry that she was going to go to jail for any and everything that she ever missed or anything or everything that she did wrong, or if she put someone on the stand that she was convinced wasn't, going to tell untruths and then they did then you you just wouldn't have people no and i think that's too job. extreme i think that's too extreme right well well like that, you know. no and that's the thing that has to be clarified is it has to be a high barrier right that prosecutors have to be protected to do their jobs but to have carte blanche to do whatever they want and never be held accountable is also an, a really bad thing that obviously has been proven not to be successful in the terms of that it puts innocent people. In prison. I mean, I couldn't agree so with you more. I mean, look at your case. <laughs> right. So a, a high barrier, a high standard um, to actually prosecute prosecutors would be good, but it has to be high and it has to no, be. No, it has to be high. It I has agree. to be egregious and it has to be really proven malice. I mean, or just straight, you know, if a, if a defense attorney does a horrible job, then they can hit him for malpractice. You know, they can sit him and say, hey, this guy was incompetent to handle this case. But there's really not the same kind of look at 
the prosecutors. They're more protected. And I don't know that they shouldn't be. I mean, it's a tough job. I mean, I mean, well, it's interesting, though, because no matter what you do in this world, people are held accountable for that. No matter who you are, except for prosecutors and to to a large degree, police as well. And Mm -hmm. prosecutors argue we can't be held accountable for anything. Otherwise, our job is undoable. And that's just that's the other you know, extreme, every other thing in the either. world. But I will say this in at least where I practice, if I was defending someone and they and we lost because they would never come after you for a legal malpractice if they won, because if they're out, why are they going to come after you? So <laughs> right. if they lost and they came after me for legal malpractice, which for the record has never happened. But if it were to happen to an attorney in New York, the def- they a defendant would have to prove actual innocence in order to win a case of legal malpractice against a criminal defense attorney. Oh, wow. So yeah. if they could prove actual innocence, you would like to think that they would have won the trial. So the standard is very, right. very high for against criminal defense attorneys. The standard should be high right. against prosecutors or they wouldn't want yeah. to do their job. But again, if it's, and it, you probably see it more in the movies than anything else. But if you have a prosecutor who's given evidence that shows that somebody else did it, and for example, they bury it or ignore it, I mean, that is, that should that's that is prosecutable. Well, we should and state so, that a lot of times, I'm sorry to cut you up, but no, a lot no, of times, unlike in the media and in movies, a good defense attorney will be shown as a hero. But it's kind of rare that a good prosecutor is shown as a hero, you know, and sometimes they are. And I want to put that out there. And They're, sometimes they yeah, are. Some of these prosecutors point. out here are heroes doing their due diligence and getting these guys who need to be off the street off the street. You know, and, and at one point in time, that was me. You know, and and I accept that, you know, and, and I can live with that today, you know. But as you look back on stuff, like in my own case, it's like, well, you saved my life, you know. At the same well, that's time. the difference, right? I mean, a, def- a prosecutor is for the state. They very rarely, I mean, sometimes you have, you have a victim and victim's families, but you don't have someone sitting next to you whose life is in your hands. So I guess from like a Hollywood or a media perspective, the defense attorney, when they have their glory, it, you see that a whole lot more because it's a more exciting. It's it builds suspense and and you're saving someone's life next to you. But yeah, I I have always felt much more glory winning a case on the defense side because you have someone next to you going, "Oh my God, you just saved my life and saved my freedom." But who knows how many lives you save on the prosecutorial right. side too, though? Yeah. You don't really get to see that, right? You don't get to see it. Next. Maybe you've prevented. We know stuff it's in the true, future. though. Right. Yeah. Not the same instant gratification. Right. Um, So I, oh, that's right. Um, So I'm curious, uh, you chose to leave the prosecutor's office after being there for some years and seeing some things that you didn't like, not necessarily having that discretion uh, with, with the cases, having to work on cases you didn't necessarily believe in. What was, if there was one, what was the, the final straw that was like, all right, I, I need to be in private practice. I need to be doing my own thing. I need to be away from the prosecutor's office. Um, so a couple years into my time at the district attorney's office, a new DA took over and my boss didn't work there anymore because of a change in, you know, regime. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people just didn't like the way the office was run anymore. Now, that being said, I think I'd sort of, I'd had my time there and I'd seen you know, injustice, but that occurs everywhere. I think it was just sort of my time 
to go. And so I handed in a letter of resignation and then they say, okay, you're fired. And then you go, that's great. I just resigned, but you know, for optics, they let you go. Um, everybody who resigns. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're going to have to edit it. I don't, I thought you said you were against the abuse of animals. It seems like you're torturing this poor puppy. I mean, what's going on I'm over there? I'm literally rubbing his back and this pain in the butt. I'm going to give him back next door. Give me two seconds. We'll see if that stands up with the evidence out here. Dude, this is like your girl opposite right here. right? <laughs> with the bad dogs. <laughs> yep. Uh, dogs are nightmares, man. Actually... Oh, yeah, I got one down here. One of them's in the other room right now. It's Now, we're at 48 minutes. Is there something you want to throw in here at the end? You know? Um. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so, so okay, so here we do, we'll do this. Brooke, I don't know if you remember the, the exact question, but just kind of say what you said last time, the answer to that. The straw that broke the camel's back thing? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it could be. Uh, and then, basically, anything else you want to say, and then we'll kind of close out because, okay. yeah, we're pretty much at time. Okay. Um, so I don't know that it was one particular thing. I'd been there a few years and a new district attorney took over one election a couple years in my direct boss didn't work there anymore then because of the change in the regime. And, and a lot of the, the morale of the office went down a lot. It became a less fun place to work. And I know you might be thinking, well, it shouldn't be about fun. It should, but it it does when, when you like going to work, I think you're better at your job and, Absolutely. And when you don't, and it's, it's not great. And then it became more and more about prosecuting rather than finding the right solution to things. And I don't, I don't stand by that. I don't think every case should be taken to trial. I think there are deals that should be made on things. I think people need to have a more open mind about why cases are handled the way that they are. Every case is different and there shouldn't be a guideline at any district attorney's office, in my opinion, that says this charge, this is what we do. This charge, you don't get an offer like that. I don't think that that's right. And so between that and, and the morale issue, you know, I went in and I handed in my resignation letter, um, to go work at a big firm and to which they say you're fired. Cause that's how it works when you resign. Um, and so I left the office and I started at the big firm. And then after being there for a while, I missed trying cases. I missed criminal law. And so a friend of mine from when I was younger started our firm, Cam I and Min, which is now um, Caminer, Min, and Rockmore, where I'm of counsel. And between their family law work and me getting to do some criminal work on my terms, it's yeah. it's a much better situation. And, you know, we hear this over and over again. We heard it from when we interviewed a probation officer earlier, the disillusionment, you go, you work hard to get into these jobs, not for riches, but to actually be, make a difference and to help people and to be fair. And you get there and and it's, and there's no way to go against that big tide of just get your convictions and move on, you know, like, and that, and I don't know that was hard for you because you're obviously a very passionate person, you know? I think that what you just said is fundamentally important the district attorney's office, when I started, made $50,000 a year. Legal aid made like 38. It was, you could not survive on a legal aid salary. I think probably the hardest job, and you might know better than I do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is corrections officer. I think it's probably no, like I the agree. unsung hero of the legal system. People do not make a lot of money to do any of these jobs. And corrections officers take their 
life, put their lives in people's hands every day. I, yes, every day. It's a job I couldn't do. And I give so much credit to the people who are willing to do these jobs because it's not about the money. It's about everyone I know for the most part, other than the kids who go in for a year to get trial experience and then just want to go to a big law firm. I think, and I'd like to, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brooke. I'm no, sorry. I think it, it's about passion and it's hopefully for the most part, it's about people just wanting to get it right. And like you said earlier, there are bad, bad apples in the police department. There are bad apples in every aspect of the justice system. But for the, for most of us, it's, it's about making a difference. It's my opinion. And I'd just like to throw this out there that a corrections officer should make the same amount of money as a state trooper. That's my opinion. You're a state officer. You're working police. You're doing police things. You should, in my opinion, and maybe some people might argue this, but you're doing just as dangerous a job as anyone else. And it's just as hard. And you have to be just as correct on every move. And I think they should be making the same money as a state trooper who's underpaid himself. You know, I mean, in my I don't opinion. know the difference in price and salaries here, but I would argue they should make significantly more because while the troopers I know are great, they are in the protection for the most part of their vehicle and not, I just think corrections officers are fundamentally underpaid and that's something that needs to, needs to be changed. Yeah, they are the hardest agreed. working people in showbiz as far as I'm concerned. Well, you've been great. That'd be a terrifying job. Yeah, you've been great. I, I love your answers to the questions we've asked today. You know, you've taken on some pretty tough questions, and I know they're not easy answers. These are big. These aren't things you can solve yeah. in one sentence and stuff. You know, and, and there's a lot to go. And there are things that people don't hear about and don't think about, but should know about because it's our criminal justice system. It's how it operates behind the scenes in the jails everywhere and this is i mean to me this is one of the more incredible yeah more and i think brooke shines a real light on the human side of it i mean really you oh, know yeah. and she's very fair and consistent and uh, brooke i i just have one last question for you this is uh this is a tough one um mostly for me uh so how does it feel to win <laughs> the amazing race yeah, how <laughs> does it feel to be the champion I mean, you ran it. You know, the experience is the experience of a lifetime. I have a feeling if anyone gets to do it again, you'll get a chance to go back. You were sort of universally beloved. Why would he I go back? You're why. the champion. He's not the champion. You're the champion. Why would he go back? They don't bring back winners. <laughs> they've never, they've nope, never Just done the losers. Losers but get I a second get chance. Your, yeah, the story of my life. <laughs> they, need, they need a champions uh, race, all champions. I know you agree to that. And they also need an all last place race. <laughs> an all last place. Ryan, I don't know if you've watched all the seasons of the show, but there are some last place teams that were just, I don't know if it would be that entertaining. I've seen Brooke, who was I've your partner on the hilarious. race? Who did you uh, race His name with? was Scott. I was on a season that was unique that we were all um, individuals. We didn't come with a partner. Oh, I and see. They we, gave you a partner. There was a schoolyard. No, there was a schoolyard pick at the start line. So I was picked by my partner after an initial task. And so like the, we met each other on girls. day one. Yep. Not the last one picked though, which is the, right. The one who could kick it over really the fence. I love watching you guys. It was a, it was a great season. And uh, obviously you guys kicked ass. Thank you. All right. That is awesome. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us. Talking about the race, talking about wrongful convictions, talking about rightful convictions, talking about the criminal justice system with you. It's amazing. Pleasure as always. Tell me, where do we find you in your social media profiles and professional life? 
Um, okay, so professionally, I'm of counsel to Green, Kaminer, Min, and Rockmore. Um, so you can Google us there if you ever need a criminal attorney. And on social media, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at at the real B Cam High. So reach out and say hi. I always love talking to people about the law or the race or you know just general stuff. Looking forward to hearing from people. I do enjoy people. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure having you on. We definitely enjoy the conversation. And uh, I'm sure Ryan has a ton of editing to do because we go off on tangents pretty quickly together. I enjoy that. But, All uh, three of us are tangent prone. <laughs> yeah, we're chatty. Right. <laughs> but it was really fun. So thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Pleasure. And uh, a little tease for next season when we do the video podcasting on YouTube. Brooke, you're going to be one of our featured guest because it's featured. so much fun hanging out with you i know we all three had such a great time so Absolutely. looking forward to that i don't know what it means to be featured but i'm very excited about it I'm and i will be- make sure to brush my hair that day so i'm into it <laughs> very As good yeah right i'll have to put Dave, a shirt don't on. forget to brush your hair very important <laughs> So you, know, you don't have to get personal as the show's ending, Ryan. You know, uh, just because you're I in New York it. doesn't make you safe. I mean, if I saved up for a few months, <laughs> I could fly out there. You know what I mean? Dave, this is audio <laughs> podcasting. I forgot that your follicles stopped working. They did. And it was because of the stress you put me into in prison with, I'm not guilty. Come on, bro. I'm under a lot of pressure already. <laughs> uh, but seriously, it was a pleasure. And uh, everyone, you know, we appreciate you, your thoughts and feelings and listening. If you want to reach out to us, we're always available. Ryan Ferguson, Life After 10 on Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz. And uh, Dave, where do we find you? Dave Dowling, 526111 on Instagram. And then just look me up on Facebook. But I don't know, Facebook scares me. But like it should. Yesterday. It should terrify all It of does because of the face part. You know what I mean? Like, couldn't it just be oh, talk yeah. book? You know what I mean? <laughs> We're going to do the non-Facebook. Right. right. Give, give me the cover it up mask book. Nice. All right. And please review, rate us. It helps people find us. It helps get the word out. And, you know, we're trying to do something good in the world. So uh helps with that. Brooke, have a great week. We'll uh, talk to you again shortly. Thank you so much, guys. We'll see you at countdown.